morning, everyone. I want to dismiss all of our kiddos, fourth and fifth graders. You guys can head out in our middle school and senior high while they're going. Where is my friend Susan Cottrell? There she is. Susan, would you join me? Oh, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe a year, year and a half. I met a wonderful couple, Susan and Robert Cottrell, for some of the folks here in our congregation. How many uh, mama bears do we have out in the congregation? A lot of folks who have been part of this group. Um, as we were doing our own work for inclusion, uh, it was impossible not to cross paths with this incredible woman named Susan Cottrell and her husband Robert. Uh, they have their own story. She'll share a little bit of it today. Um, but before we go into our message about beauty and everything, we had a chance because she was in town today just for us to finally have her just address you. Uh, her life and her ministry has impacted so many of you. Even if you don't know it, her life and ministry has impacted you through the mama bears that are here and through our ministry. So she was in town staying with uh, Kelly and uh, Dwayne Holiday this weekend, and we wanted her just to address you and greet you. I can't tell you the amount of work and um, the frontline ministry that this woman has been in this fight for full freedom, inclusion, and witnessing the beloved of God and all of God's children. So would you welcome Susan Cottrell. <laughs> everything in that moment I said will she be okay will she be loved will she be bullied will she ever have a job or, or a career and will never be the same in the church again so here's my daughter sharing the most intimate part of her life and I know we'll never be the same in the church again the church the sanctuary which means a safe place would no longer be a safe place. I knew that. I find that an incredible indictment to that church system. Wow. So um, my husband and I uh, began this work. When, when our daughter um, came out and after we had all, we didn't even think twice about not accepting her you know, she said, are you sure you won't kick, kick me out and reject me? And I, I said, we already haven't rejected you. Why do you keep asking this? She said, because it's happened to so many people I know. And that broke my heart. I had no idea that was the case. And, um, and that's when I knew this work had to be done. So we started Freed Hearts. We it started with a blog, which kind of went crazy 
And I got a lot of comments back saying, well, it was a little surprising to read what you wrote. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was. Um, it, but people came out of the woodwork who needed support, who said, my daughter's come out, I have nobody to tell. Or my parents, I can't tell my parents. Or I told my parents and they're rejecting me. And all the while, I just kept saying, God, whatever you're telling me to do, I got to do it. What are, you, what are you doing? And I felt like God kept saying, just love them. Just love them. That's the job. And I have been, and it has been transformative. I'm, you know, I think that thing where Jesus said, love God and love others, and everything else will fit under that. And love works, and love never fails. I don't know. I think that's, he's kind of onto something kind of makes sense. <laughs> yes, indeed. And the cool thing is, so we free heart, the hearts of parents to unconditionally love and embrace their LGBTQI kids because of their faith, not in spite of it. And we free the hearts of LGBTQI people to heal from the wounds that have been put on them and free them to love themselves as they are, and free to reconnect to God because they've had to reframe who God really is and not what they've been told. And we're also working to free the hearts of the church to become radically inclusive. I don't know, it's radical, but that's what we're doing. Uh, doing. And the thing is, after all of this, I wouldn't... I wouldn't make my gay kids straight, my queer kids straight if I could. That's the remarkable journey this has been, to, to see that this road has deepened my faith, deepened my trust in God, deepened my love for my kids, for humanity, because I'm not worried about staying away from people that are not like me or that might, you know, contaminate me with their sin. <laughs> it's incredibly freeing, isn't it? <laughs> um, and I know you at Grace Point have had quite a journey, haven't you? You've experienced being in the trenches for a while now. Lots of changes, unexpected, difficult, and beautiful in ways you couldn't have predicted. And I bet it has grown your faith and your love in ways you wouldn't have anticipated too, hasn't it? So I want to give you a little encouragement this morning. You may have been called names on your journey, like apostate, heretic, troublemaker, misfit, rebel. Yeah, me too. And we're in good company because Jesus had those names too. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you something. You, we, are the ones who are changing the world. You may have been rejected and condemned and shamed and shunned and othered and labeled and discredited and kicked out of your homes even, kicked out of your churches. You might be gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, questioning. You might be a supporter, an advocate, or an ally. You might be the parent or a family member of an LGBTQI child. You might identify as oppressed or marginalized in some other way. Whatever your situation, you may now be living in the margins. But let me share something with you. It is from the margins that all the great movements of God have come. 
Picture a boy in the pews listening to stuff that just doesn't make sense, and he's uncomfortable. His heart is troubled, and he doesn't know why. But what about this, that, or other thing he wants to ask? But the pastor, who, if he were open, would say, that's a very good question. Just can't bring himself to say that. So instead, he shuts him up, and he shuts him down. And he tells others that they should have nothing to do with him. That boy could be Copernicus, postulating that the earth is not the center of the universe. Or it could be Galileo saying the same thing some hundred years later, both of whom shifted our understanding of our solar system and so our universe. It could be Wycliffe or Luther or Calvin, all labeled heretics because they challenged the church's unchristian, self-serving doctrine. Yet these protesters became the Protestants that gave people an alternative to the Roman Catholic Church and produced Bibles in people's street languages. And what if it's a girl in that pew, like Joan of Arc, who led the French army to freedom, and the church thanked her by burning her at the stake? It's always a good thank you, isn't it? And other women who didn't tow the party line, and so the church burned them as witches. It could be Brennan Manning, who wrote the about God's love for us in Ragamuffin Gospel. Today it might be you or your parent or your child who's saying, wait, aren't we supposed to love unconditionally? We are witnessing a great movement today in the simple message of good news emerging from the margins and into our common understanding. Beautiful. A movement of unconditional radical love and inclusivity a movement to live and love like Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that you are the leaders of that movement. I get really irritated when I listen to news outlets and I see Franklin Graham or James Dobson or Pat Robertson listed as evangelical leader. I don't think they're leaders. I think they're followers of fear into a graveyard of fear and death. They have nothing to do with Jesus. In the not-too-distant futures, those names will be gone, and those listed as leaders will be other names, and I think Stan Mitchells will be among them. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you and me. Every day, countless people in the pews and pulpits are just not feeling at peace in their hearts. And you know the cure. It's to radically include, to unconditionally love. Just as Jesus told us, God radically includes and unconditionally loves us. To welcome, affirm, include, accept all. Not because of what they do or even because of who they are, but because of who we are and God's love. Because God is love. And that to love like Jesus is the only, the only cure that we have. And it will cure what's making our hearts and our church ill. You are the future leaders, and it's important for our, our own hearts that we know that and own that. It gives us strength and encouragement when things get really rough. Outside the institutional Christianity, there's always been a remnant of those who have loved radically 
who have embraced the spiritual teachings of Jesus that were denied or twisted by the church. Throughout church history, the, this enduring remnant has been marginalized and silenced and ostracized and shunned and put to death. But light isn't extinguished, and that light is intensifying these days, coming out in the open with a new boldness, and it won't be turned back. You are that light, and you are, that le are leading that light. You're indeed intensifying and becoming brighter and bolder every day. Receive that truth and know it in your heart. Breathe it in, and let's do this. Thank you for having me be here. Please come see me at the table out there. I have um, my book, Mom, I'm Gay, Loving Your LGBTQI Child um, and Strengthening Your Faith. And I have True Colors, Celebrating the Truth and Beauty of the Real You. And that's a deeply healing workbook to heal you from the wounds that have been put on you. I'd love to talk to you, have you get on my mailing list. If you wanna talk about your child or if you wanna talk about your parent, come see me. <laughs> I love being here. I thank you for all that you're doing, and um, I'm, I'm grateful for all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Susan, and I do hope folk will spend some time with you after service. From Richard Selzer's book, uh, mortal Lessons, written, I think, some 30 years ago. Selzer was a brilliant doctor, uh, still remains a brilliant doctor. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in a palsy, clownish form. A tiny twig of the facial nerve the one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed. I did this. Scarcely in her early 30s, she will be thus by my making from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I was forced to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Her tears, his worry. Who are they, I ask myself? Who are they, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch Who are these two, whose hands and hearts so generously, without greed, touch? The young woman whispers, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes. Yes, I say it will. I had to cut the nerve to save your life. She nods, she's silent. Her head turns to the side. Tears drip onto the pillow. 
the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's beautiful. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate the new curve of hers, to show her, above all, that their kiss still works. Gospel. Good news. In our series on beauty, we consider beauty to be that experience, those experiences, those experiences in life that stimulate us, arrest us, wake us, shock us, move us out of psychic and emotional complacency, experiences that awaken our senses and put us in touch with ultimate reality. Ultimate reality being that which is around us at all times. And yet, a reality that we so often pass by. Beauty are those things, almost indescribable, ineffable, things that awaken our eyes, things that stimulate our ears, things that touch our nose and our fingers. They give us they give us eyes to see. Beauty are those things, um, those things in life. You sent the pictures this week of those things, pictures of your children, uh, pictures of nature, things that literally give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see and noses to smell with. Beauty, though hard to define, is at least, in effect, those things in life that serve as catalysts. They are not the thing itself, but as C.S. Lewis said, they are the faint hint of a song from a distant land. They are those things that waft in and out of our life, unbeckoned, that open us to truth, that open us to the cosmos in all of its glory. Within my faith system, a faith system so shaped and moved by one named Jesus, um, it is our belief that the portal to another world is actually inside of us. We've been processing these words of Jesus for 2,000 years and little by little are trying to grow into them. But there is a portal to another world. Jesus called it, and the early Christian writers called it the kingdom of God, Kingdom has fallen on hard times because it's not the best form of a nation state and there are abuses there, so we now call it the beloved community. Whatever you call it, Jesus said, don't look for it out there or over there or beyond. Look for it inside because that's where it is. So we believe that there are portals inside of us, wormholes inside of us that take us to that other world. And ultimately, as we delve into that other world through these portals of beauty that provoke and open our eyes, that open the retina of our soul, as we follow beauty across the threshold into that other world, ultimately we find that the other world is actually this world. Ultimately we find that the beloved community, the kingdom, the other world is not a dimension beyond, 
It requires no multiverse and no fourth dimension. It is this three-dimensional world fully alive. I'll never forget when I finally began to recognize in my own life that there was not this mystical sixth sense that I was supposed to be pursuing, that really this thing that we called the sixth sense was simply the five senses God has given us fully alive. If we ever get our eyes and ears and noses working fully, we will find that other world, this world, fully on fire, things that we never saw. But as long as we're living with these five senses mitigated, truncated by life, firing at five and 10 and 20%, the reality is that sixth sense is when I finally actualize the gift of eyes and ears and the olfactory sense, the sense of touch, the sense of hearing, when those things are fully alive, I find that which we have called the sixth sense. And as Deepak Chopra said a couple of weeks ago, as Lindsley and I and Ben and Melissa were listening to him, it was a brilliant statement. What we have been calling out-of-world or out-of-body experiences are actually in-body experiences. There's nothing wrong with our body and there is nowhere we need to go. You remember the movie Matthew McConaughey and Jodie Foster back 15 years ago called Contact? Anybody watch Contact? Man, I've watched Contact three times. The brilliance of that movie was when they finally built that billion-dollar spaceship that was to take them to the other world, they thought it failed because the spaceship didn't move. You remember? The point was the transcendent journey was not a journey through the cosmos. The transcendent journey was a journey internally, deep inside. Beauty is that which takes us across that threshold on that transcendent journey. To that end, beauty manifests as a lot of things. It manifests as art. It manifests as nature. It manifests as human excellence. It manifests as the wistful, wry smile of our child. But beauty manifests in a lot of forms. And one way beauty manifests that we want to focus on today is it manifest in the human frame. To truly see beauty in the human frame is our exercise today. To truly see beauty in the human frame that is ours, perhaps the hardest human frame to see beauty within. And yet, again, the wisdom of Jesus, it seems impossible to truly see beauty in the other until we see beauty in ourselves. It is difficult to see others as beloved until we recognize ourselves as beloved. To love others, even as we have loved ourselves. Oh, the poor, the poor halting ways we love ourselves. So today the exercise is just to take a little time and to see ourselves as beautiful. To look personally at the human frame that is mine, believing that if I can see and recognize beauty inside of myself, which has always been a struggle, since I was a little bitty boy, my own struggle to find beauty in myself made me incredibly sympathetic for those who wrestled to find beauty in themselves. And I became early on a young little pastor from the time I was an elementary child. I've never known any other identity except trying to help other people to see their beauty. Part of that has been altruism. Part of that has been distraction because it's been either easier to help others with their pain and their pursuit than my own. I always wonder what it would be like to live outside of that box. I'm trying to live outside of it better these days. I remember Virginia in my second grade class. I always had a heart for Virginia. 
Virginia was, by all estimates, the poorest in our class, and she smelled bad, and she didn't look like the other kids looked, and she had a pretty rough time. It was before anti-bullying campaigns and the cruelty of children uh, reached a pretty fevered pitch there in Little South Elementary School down on Highway 49 in Paragould, Arkansas, and Virginia was always the brunt of kids touching her and then spreading her germs. You remember those dastardly games you have? Can you imagine what it feels like in the psyche of a six-year-old child to hear somebody say, you have Virginia's germs? And to watch kids run across the playground, playing, laughing. God, I, I, still, remember, I still remember how in fourth grade, we were all supposed to put our names in the hats to swap and trade gifts. And we were told to spend no more than, I think, three or four dollars on a gift. And I remember Virginia knowing full well that her family did not have the three to four dollars to pay for a gift. That poor little soul put her name in anyway. And I remember thinking to myself when I saw her stand and put her name in, as the teacher told us, oh, even the cruelty of of the system in those days. The teacher said, if you don't have money to buy a gift, don't put your name in. Who does that? How, what, what were we thinking, Kelly? What were we thinking? God. Put her, put her name in because she knew that whatever Christmas gift she got at school would be the only one she gets. And right before the exchange a few days later, you remember those little pot pie tins that you put uh, shaving cream in and cut out little figures and you make Christmas decorations with them? Do you remember doing that? You put shaving cream and you just cut out little pictures of Christmas scenes and you stick them in. I remember when we were opening our gifts, watching Virginia open hers. Maybe in the only present she'd ever gotten in her life. She opened hers and it was some little doll and she was thrilled to death. But unfortunately, the girl whose name she got when she opened her gift out of newspaper wrapping, uh, it was that little pie tin filled with. And I remember the girl immediately erupted Jason in tears because her gift wasn't good. And she said, look at what I got. Why did Virginia get this for me? And I remember thinking as a little boy, oh, God, somebody do something. Somebody. And instead, the teacher walks over, puts it on Virginia's desk, and said, I said if you didn't have money to buy a gift, don't put your name in. Oh, God. Oh, the forces of life that children and us adult children even endure at the hands of one another. But I remember one particular day back in first or second grade, Virginia was being castigated for being ugly and I didn't know what else to say. My words had not been formed. I had not taken homiletics and public speaking yet, but my heart was broken. And I went to her. She was sitting slumped on uh, like the, the stands in the gym. I, I can see her right now. And she was crying. And I remember I put my arm around her and I said, Virginia, I don't care if you're ugly. I still love you. I was trying. <laughs> Bernita Rogers, my, my teacher, my teacher and uh, a beloved lady, Bernita Rogers called my mother and said, 
I heard him say that, and she said, I drew her breath, and she said, I watched that little girl lay her head over on his shoulder. And she cried, and I patted her. God. Oh, I didn't take my medicine last night. I'm emotional today. I got to remember to double up before Sundays. Mm-hmm. Today we're looking personally to the human frame that is ourself, believing that if we can see and recognize the beauty that exists in our own person, we will call no one ugly. The eye is the window of the soul. And to be able to look down into my own eye, into the symmetry or asymmetry of my own soul and to find beauty there, we believe here at Grace Point and we believe that we are all the beloved of God and Lee you use the word lovely and beloved all the time and I've heard you say something similar to this but to be beloved is to be beautiful you're always telling us it's so uncomfortable when you tell me I'm beautiful handsome you know good-looking something and yet I get it because you know to be beautiful is to be beloved you're always telling me you're beautiful because to be beautiful is to be beloved and to be beloved is to be beautiful I was reading just this week and I'll, I'll say a few more things and in a few minutes Melissa's going to come and lead us in an exercise that I think is going to be good for all of us but I was reading not on this subject but I came across a statement by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that so applies Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the great nurse practitioner in the 70s and 80s who gave us the levels and the stages of grief. We'd had them for years, but she articulated them out of her work in hospice so incredibly. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who had spent her life watching bodies emaciate and waste away until finally hearts ceased, said, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Truly beautiful people do not just happen, and truly beautiful people do not happen at the mirror. F. Scott Fitzgerald said she was beautiful, but not like those girls in the magazines. She was beautiful. She was beautiful for the way she thought. She was beautiful for the sparkle in her eyes when she talked about something she loved. She was beautiful for her ability to make other people smile even if she was sad. No, she wasn't beautiful for something as temporary as her looks. She was beautiful deep down to her soul. She is beautiful. I remember after Paul Newman, one of my favorite actors, died, his beloved wife, Joanne Woodward, was being interviewed. And I'll never forget the interviewer said, what was it like to be married to one of the best-looking human beings that the world has ever known? What was it like to be married to a man that beautiful? And Joanne Woodward said, 
Huh. I haven't thought about that in years. She said, I suppose he was beautiful, and I suppose he was even one of the best-looking men to walk on earth. But she said, after a while of being with someone, she said, you really can't tell whether they're physically good-looking or not. They just become Paul. She said, but I can tell you this. I don't know what it was like to be married to him because he was so good-looking, but I can tell you every day for 42 years, he made me laugh. He was beautiful. Alex Flynn said, people make such a big deal about looks, but after a while, when you know someone, you don't even notice, really. Thank God we begin to transcend to the beauty of the soul. Dean Metzger, or Deanne Metzger said, beauty appears when something is completely and absolutely and openly itself. Beauty appears when something is completely and absolutely and openly itself. My God the culturally driven ideas of symmetry and size and color and portion that we wrestle against. Just yesterday I sat with one of my dearest friends as he lamented that his little granddaughter, eight years old, had just through the help of a child at school who probably was dealing with their own sense of ugliness. Just yesterday my friend told me that his little granddaughter, precious and unimpacted, naked and not ashamed, still in the Garden of Eden. A serpent slithered into her garden and told her that there was a little roll here on her side that didn't look good when you see you from behind, he said. And, and somehow the word seeped into her and this little girl now for days has become fixated on this thing that she didn't even... She didn't even know it existed. But someone said that it's there and from behind you can see it through your clothes and it doesn't. And a little eight-year-old girl whose eyes have been heavenward and sparkling stars looking at sparkling stars now is bothered and... Hmm. False notions about beauty, symmetry, size, color, proportion. Naomi Wolf, I remember, I remember hearing this over and over, but I haven't thought about it in years. But what a brilliant statement she made when she said a cultural fixation on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty. It's an obsession about female obedience. My God, listen to that again. A cultural fixation on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty it's an obsession about female obedience the way that culture the way extrinsic locus of controls develop and we control one another and demean one another subjugating one another to an obedience that none of us can fully accomplish this is the shifting sand cultural ideologies and notions of beauty. But today as we look into our own hearts, I just want to proclaim that there is a solid rock by which to view ourselves, Lee, as truly beautiful. There is a pattern by which we can look through our own eyes down deep into our soul and find beauty there.
I heard a woman just yesterday say that she was complaining to her psychologist, her therapist, about how difficult it was to look in the mirror these days as her body was experiencing age and atrophy. And she asked her therapist, how do I look in the mirror without this feeling? And her therapist failed when he told her, you need to start squinting. Oh my God, the ways we make one another squint, Read the ways that we compel one another to get the lighting right. Squint when you look in the mirror. Well, there is a solid rock of how you can see yourself as beautiful without squinting and with all the lights on. The story goes, and I've told it many times from a different angle, but as is the beauty of sacred literature, there are always new angles to unfold. For 2,000 years, the Christian church has told the story of Eve as a story of temptation to sin. A serpent slithered into the garden, wrapped his arm around Eve, and said, Hey, look at that fruit. And that is not the story at all. Jeff, the actual story is that the serpent slithered into the garden just like the serpent that slithered up to that little eight-year-old girl. The serpent slithered into the garden and the serpent did not put his arm around Eve and say, look at that fruit. The serpent slithered into the garden, saddled up to Eve and said, look at yourself. The story does not say that the serpent said, hey, look at that fruit. It's really good to eat. The serpent pointed to the tree, and it gets us all thrown off, and we miss the point. Perhaps Eve even missed the point, but the serpent pointed at the tree and was really pointing straight at her soul when the serpent said to her, what did God say to you about that tree? Look at God. What did God say to you about that tree? And Eve said, well, naked and unashamed, the beauty, the beauty of a human being. Naked with a smile. That's not just a cute country song. That's healthy psychology. Naked with a smile is the most beautiful of form. Naked, she said of that tree. Oh, no, she said of God. God told me not to eat of it because God loves me and it's a dangerous tree. A tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree of the knowledge of symmetry and asymmetry, a tree of the knowledge of where things are supposed to be and how chins are supposed to be formed, a knowledge that none of us are ever supposed to have. The serpent said, what did God say? And she said, God loves me and God told me not to eat. And the serpent said, God has lied to you. Now at this point, the serpent still is not saying, look at the tree. Now the serpent is saying, don't just look at God, look at yourself. Do you know who you are? There you are in your naked and unashamed beauty, thinking, prancing around this garden like you're loved and protected, like there's somebody somewhere benevolently in the sky watching out for you. You are a cuckold and a fool. God is not lover, and you are not beloved. 
you're living beneath your privilege because you think God has concern and you are worth loving. But there in your nakedness, you are not worth loving. You are not even worth telling the truth. You are not even worth sharing the best things with. But I can give you what you want. Now look at the tree. And the Bible said, then she saw that the tree was good for food. Then she only saw the world different after she saw herself different. When God is not lover and I am not loved, then the whole world looks different. And a serpent slithers into her life. And that serpent slithers into all of our lives. In the story of the second Adam, Adam and Eve fallen the first time into that realm of unworth and shame. Now the second Adam baptized wet with the waters of his baptism, ears ringing with the words, you are my beloved, you are beautiful. And yet Isaiah said in terms of looks and culture, he was not comely that our eyes would fix on him. It was not his stature and symmetry and olive skin, but he was beautiful. And the father said, in that baptism, you are my beloved son, you are beautiful, and in you I am pleased. Not by you, not through you, but in you, intrinsically beautiful. And the Bible says the Spirit drove him immediately into the wilderness, and there the second Adam goes into that place, naked and unashamed, filled with worth and a sense of beauty and belovedness. And the serpent comes to him. And the tempter did not tempt him to sin any more than the tempter tempted Eve to sin. Oh, for the day when the church will quit hammering sin as our primary problem and realize. When a little eight-year-old girl who's going to be 14 and she's going to find the possibilities of food addiction and bulimia when she's going to find the ability to cut and to give herself away in her body. Oh, for the day that the church will realize this is not a sin problem, it's a shame problem. Oh, for the day that we will realize the way we have hammered sin has actually created our greater problem. She is Eve. We are all Eve. And to look at a little eight-year-old girl wrestling with her worth and touching her body and to say her primary problem is sin and what we need to do is help her realize she's separated from God and can be saved this will not save her from anorexia this will not save her from bulimia this will drive her even closer through the closet of a Sunday school class to the deepest fallenness humans can experience and that is shame not sin and Jesus was not tempted to sin Jesus was tempted to question his worth and his beauty. And the tempter came and said, If you are beautiful, if you are the beloved Son of God, if you can stand here in the pristine nakedness of identity with a smile, then you're going to have to prove it to me. Turn that stone into bread. This was no sin. Jesus was lauded for his miracle working. We love Jesus because of his miracles. Jesus was not tempted to sin. He was tempted to do something good for the wrong reason. He was tempted to perform a miracle to prove his worth.
Oh, for the day we quit hammering our kids because they explored the fruit of sexuality. Oh, for the day we realized the reason the reason that they did these things, the reason they do these things, the reason they explore these things. They are not exploring wrong things. They are exploring right things for the wrong reasons. And when that little girl tries to satisfy Buck the feeling she has because of this, by hearing a little boy or another little girl tell her that she's beautiful so they can get what they want from her, for the church to call this sin, we have missed the point by a thousand years. What we have called the gospel has been telling people they're so ugly God can't be with them, but he's magnanimous enough to come back to them if they'll do the right things. What we need to tell them is the true gospel. God would never leave them. And God looks at their wry smile and God looks at the little roll and says, that is beautiful. And when our shame of ugliness is healed, even if it's a voice that says, I don't care if you're ugly, I love you. Oh, to hear that voice that calls us beloved. This is the journey of finding beauty. And as we discussed, as Michelle and Lindsley and Anna and Melissa and I sat around a few weeks ago and just talked about how do we talk about beauty. And Carol, we knew that we could not talk about the beauty in the heavens unless Barbara, we first talked about the beauty that we see when we look into the mirror without squinting. Can you say amen? amen? Would you bow with me and close as Melissa and the team comes and let's just contemplate for a minute. Meditate for just a few seconds and Melissa will bring you out of that meditation.